see you all tonight, especially on a rainy night like this. I, um, I know it's hard and it's easy to stay home or to stay back in your dorm or your apartments, wherever you are. Um, but it's good to be together and to sing God's praises and to hear uh, from God's words. And so I do, do hope that tonight will be a blessing for you um, while you're here tonight. Uh, we're going to read from 2 Kings 13. This semester we've been looking at the story of Elijah which has led into the story of Elisha, not just, uh, not just about their particular lives, but also the events surrounding uh, their, their ministry, the way in which God used them in this particular time and in this particular place in the kingdom of God uh, and the way in which they served him. And so as we saw about midway through the semester, the end of Elijah's life and the transition from Elijah to Elisha, so too tonight we come to the end of Elisha's life. And admittedly, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an odd set of verses. And so I, I want to just kind of give you that warning to, at the beginning. Like it's an odd set of verses, but as we dive in, I think we'll see that it actually, makes, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense on why they come together in this way. So let me read for us from 2 Kings chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah... Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the king's of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we uh, confess that on a rainy night like this, we need um, extra grace and extra mercy from you to be able to, to stay attentive and to hear. And every time we come before your word, Lord, we need your spirit to open our hearts and our eyes so that we might apply the truths that we see, that we might be transformed more and more into your image. And we ask that you'll do that even tonight, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, nearing the end of the semester like this, it's a, natural, it's a natural time to reflect on what the year has been like, to reflect on this semester and maybe the entire year. Uh, there's these natural markers that come throughout your life, especially while you're still in school, that it's like the end of a school year, an opportunity to reflect, an opportunity to evaluate where you are 
in your major and in your, in your degree uh, and all of the things that are coming. And there's, there's this common experience. Now, I know COVID may have disrupted this for some of you, but there's this common experience that happens when you're in high school that about the time you graduate high school, all of a sudden there's this moment where it dawns on you that you're like, those last four years went by so fast. And I'm here at graduation. And it feels like I just started. And you get into college. And I remember this very vividly. I went to FAU. My brother went to FAU. And we graduated in the, in the gym, the basketball arena. And my brother graduated a year before me. And I felt like, for me, college just felt like it was dragging forever. And I remember sitting in the gym watching my brother graduate. And I had this thought. I was like, I've only got a year left. And next year, it's going to be me walking across the stage. And sure enough, a year later, I, I just, it dawned on me again that with high school, it felt like it went by fast. College felt like it went by even faster. And there's this reality that... As you move on from college, you lose some of these markers that naturally come. And it's only, you know, the natural as a parent that now I've, I've reached this stage with my kids that we'll go back and watch videos of our kids, like whenever they're babies. And you're like, man, that just felt like it was yesterday. Uh, and they're not in diapers anymore. Praise the Lord. Uh, but it just felt like yesterday that we just had these little kids. And all of a sudden it's like, how did this happen so quick? Life has a way of doing that to us. How quickly time passes us by. But there's a real blessing and there's a real privilege that we get with the natural markers that come with a school year to be able to reflect not just on the year, not just to reflect on your classes, and not just to reflect on if you're doing well academically, but to really pause and to consider and to reflect, where are you before the Lord? Where are you in your walk with Christ? How have you seen God at work this year? Because this is a great opportunity to pause and reflect and take stock. And this passage in particular gives us that ability to do that as well. And even as we come to the end of Elisha's life, what we'll see tonight is that this story isn't just a story about the end of Elisha's life. That actually what we're going to find tonight is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity is a message of hope. It's a message of life. It's a message of resurrection. It's a message that gives us the ability to continue on and persevere and to see that God's at work no matter where you find yourself, even in that little place of self-evaluation. And so even while we dive in on this story of Elisha and Joash, we're going to see the connection that it ultimately makes to Christ, to his victory over death, which hopefully will embolden us to follow him more closely and to pursue him more wholeheartedly. So let's dive in. First thing I want you to see tonight, we're going to make two points. First thing I want you to see tonight is that God's promise of victory over evil, God's promise of victory over evil should motivate us to wholehearted devotion. God's promise of victory over evil should, should, like, uh, should challenge us and motivate us to wholehearted devotion before him. So let's look at a little bit of this, of this story. It begins in verse 10 with the, the uh, chronicling the story of these kings Verse 10, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahash, son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. There was two different kingdoms, kind of Israel was divided. Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south. And here we find that while this man Joash was king of Judah, well, there's another man named Jehoahash who's also going to go by Joash in a minute. So that's going to get a little bit confusing, but I'll try to keep it straight for you. Uh, He begins to reign and we're given the summary of his life. Here's the summary of his life. Ready? He reigned 16 years. Verse 11, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How are we going to summarize this man's life? How do we summarize his reign? What's his legacy when he dies? He did evil. That was his reputation. That's what he was known for. 
Further, he even went even deeper into this world of darkness. It wasn't just like he made a bad mistake at one point, but he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Like in the Hebrew mindset to walk in them is this, is this settled disposition of life. Like my heart is not looking towards the Lord. My heart is set in this settled disposition where I'm walking uh, contrary to the way of God and I'm walking in this way that I choose to go. And I think right there, there's an opportunity for us to just pause and reflect that for all the ups and downs, the trials, the hardships, the tribulations, the disappointments, what would the summary of your life be? What would the summary, the story be told of really at the heart level, who are you before the Lord? Not so much what would your friends say, that would be the funny stories that they tell, but what would be the evaluation of your character before Christ? Would it be, man, she was faithful to Christ. She loved him wholeheartedly and she served others joyfully. Jehoash said he did evil and he was settled in that course of life. And yeah, he fought some other battles. You can go read about him, but you know what? None of that stuff really matters because this is the direction of his life. But then the author of Kings does something interesting. With that background, it's like, here's the summary. This is what his life was like. We can zoom out and we can just see, here's the summary. Now he says, like, let's zoom in for a moment. And we're actually going to zoom in on one particular moment in his life that actually tells us a lot about his character. And it's a stunning contrast to Elisha's life. It's almost like these two men are going to be juxtaposed one against the other. And we're going to see the way in which the promise of God's victory over evil should motivate us to wholehearted devotion. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because we ended the, the, you know, this incredible basketball season for FAU. But this, this, this comparison between these two people, it made me think about, I don't know if you guys have seen these videos, but at the end of every March Madness season for the last 35 years, there's always a summary video that's made called One Shining Moment. And it's a summary of kind of the March Madness. You can, if, you, if you know it, you're probably hearing the theme song in the back of your mind. If you haven't, look, look it up later. You get to see FAU featured this year in the One Shining Moment video. But what's striking about watching the One Shining Moment montage is you see a direct contrast between player and player of the thrill of victory and just the crushing defeat that comes. You see absolute joy on behalf of players celebrating and you see tears of realizing this has come to an end. And so too, in that same way, what the writer of Kings is doing is he's ushering us into this moment and saying, look at these two people's life. For Jehoash, it's not one shining moment. We would probably call the video one tarnished moment. This was your opportunity and you completely blew it. Here's the story. He comes to Joash, or Joash comes to him in verse 14 to Elisha. Elisha has fallen sick. He's about to die. Joash goes down to him and he's weeping before him. And he's saying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Why is he saying that? Well, because Elisha in so many ways symbolized the presence of God that whenever Elisha was present, God, or whenever Elisha was present, God's presence was known. Whenever they went into battle, Elisha represented the very, the very uh, ability of God's power to be known among the people. And so even whenever, remember, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, whenever the, the whole world or their whole city was surrounded by enemy forces, 
Elisha gave his servant the ability to see the invisible chariots of God who were there protecting him. And now Joash has this moment of clarity. Elisha is dying. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen, in other words, our protection, is going to be gone. And Elisha gives him an oracle that he acts out. This, this is like a bizarre moment, but it, you know, this is the Old Testament, so bizarre things happen. Uh, and he tells him, he goes, okay, go get a bow and arrow, verse 15. So he gets the bow and arrow. Notice at the beginning, notice how clearly he's following all of these instructions. Go take a bow and arrow. So he took bow and arrow. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, opened the window eastward, and he opened it. Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. Everything that Elisha is saying, he's following through to the letter of what he's supposed to do. What is this symbolic meaning supposed to happen? As he shoots eastward, where their enemies are coming from, he's promising, Elisha's promising, your dependence isn't on me. Your dependence is on God. God will deliver you and he will provide for all of your needs. He has given you victory over the evil one. You don't need to fear Elisha's passing. Know that God's protecting you. Great news. He gives him another oracle. Here comes oracle number two, verses 18 and 19. Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them, and he struck three times and stopped. And then Elisha, the man of God, was angry, and he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it but now you will only strike it down three times. That seems like such a, it seems like such a bizarre story. And admittedly, when you first read it, you almost kind of have a sense of compassion for Joash. You're like, well, how is he supposed to know? My conviction is Joash knew good and well when Elisha told him, take the arrows that are in your quiver. You've got five or six of them. Shoot all of them into the ground that he deliberately only went halfway because he just didn't have the wholehearted devotion to follow through with what he said. I'll shoot three. I'm not going to follow through the whole way. It's clear from the writer of Kings that Joash blew it and Elisha blew it, and he's going to pay the consequences for it. Rather than wholehearted devotion, God has just promised you victory. What are you going to do? I'll just shoot three. Boom, boom, boom. This is a stupid illustration, but imagine if someone told you, I know you're going to win the lottery today. Here's $100. Go buy lottery tickets. You're like, I'll just go buy one. Should have bought $100 worth because one of them was going to be the winner, right? Like in the same way, in some respects, Elisha, or Joash didn't follow through with what God had told him to do through Elisha. And he only shot three as just a half-hearted follow-through of what he was going to do. Why does that matter and how does it apply to us? I think as we understand the gospel... And we understand the promise of God's salvation to us through Christ. That as Jesus has died on the cross, he's been raised from the dead. We celebrated that this Easter in vivid reality. He's also called us then as his followers to follow wholeheartedly after him. And my fear is that there's a danger that we kind of just look at our lives as kind of just this this half-hearted attempt. They're like, well, I know God's made this promise, but does my life, does it really matter? And I can kind of just do what I want and kind of just spiritually sort of skate by. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of praying with a man who he had known for a long time. And he knew that this man for most of his adult life was uh, just a raging alcoholic. And finally, one one night and just a a moment of, of 
a little bit of clarity and a little bit of shame and a little bit of wanting to change, he comes to this pastor and he asks him, I need to change. Will you pray for me? Will you help me? Will you remind me of what I need to know and what I need to do? He's moved to tears over his sin. He's broken and he's humbled, seeking change. And his pastor says to him, well, you know what God's word says that uh, you know, this is the promise of salvation. And this is what Jesus has done on the cross. And if you confess your sins and you believe in him, that he'll forgive you of your sins. Is that what you want? He said, yes, that's exactly what I want. And he says, well, if, you, if you'll put your faith and your belief in Jesus and God's word promises that you'll have salvation, will you put your faith and your belief in Jesus? He said, yeah, that's exactly what I want. And he says, you know, God's word says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away. and Behold, all things are new. And in that moment, he could feel the temperature in the room started to change. It got a little bit quiet. And he said, well, let's pray that God will enable you to overcome the clutches of addiction. And he said, no, don't pray that prayer. Don't pray that prayer. That's not what I want. And he walked away. Hearing the hope of salvation, that when the call really came of this is what faithfulness and repentance looks like, he said, no. Don't pray that prayer. And it's sort of like Jehoash grabbing just the three arrows and saying, I'm only going to go this far, but no further. C.S. Lewis was right when he wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's offer of salvation is there for his people and he calls us to follow to him and follow through with wholehearted devotion laying hold of the salvation that's ours in Christ, but with a wholehearted trust and fullness of joy. But God doesn't just leave us there in that moment. I'd say, you know, if you think about your life and as you evaluate this semester and you evaluate where you've been, and if you think about what the summary of your life would be, and if you come away thinking, half-hearted devotion's kind of been the theme of my life. Maybe almost no hearted devotion has been the theme of your life, but there is a moment of repentance and there's a moment of brokenness. And if you're willing to confess your sin, if you're willing to put your faith in Christ, if you're willing to follow after him and to renounce the, the sinful and evil ways and look to Christ for your hope and salvation, well, God's word assures us that there's ultimate hope even beyond this life. It's why I believe this story transitions from this scene of Jehoash's uh, just failure to follow through to a final miracle to give us hope. Yes, God gives us the call to follow him wholeheartedly, but this story also gives us a final miracle to give us hope. Verse 20, Elisha died and they buried him. It's kind of just a, a kind of just a sad ending. I mean, there's no like, you know, Elijah got the chariots to come and then the whirlwind was taken up to heaven and he went through this whole big tour all over Israel and like a victory march with Elisha. It's like Elisha, Elisha died and they buried him. No big ceremony for the end of his life. It's kind of plain and it's kind of ordinary until we read the rest of this verse. Now the band of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. 
The more I've thought about this story and the more I've thought about the comparison of Elisha and Elijah and how Elisha carried on the mantle of Elijah's ministry, it's like it shouldn't be a surprise that God reserved one more final miracle that in Elisha's death, there would be one final opportunity to see Elisha uh, represented as the one who faithfully ministered God's word and so communicated to the people of God the power of salvation that was theirs for the taken. A dead man's thrown into the grave, touches Elisha's bones, and he's, re- he's re- uh, revived, brought to new life. That power of God that had been so active in Elisha's life didn't disappear with Elisha's death. It wasn't that Elisha himself possessed magic power. It's that God worked through him. And so even in his death, God is still showing that he is at work resurrecting people to new life, resurrecting to those who are broken over their sin, taking those who feel the weight and the guilt and the burden of their sin and who feel the shame that comes with the decisions that they made. He says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you from all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And figuratively speaking, as this man was thrown into the grave and merely touched the bones of Elisha, he was raised to new life. How much more for those who put their faith in Christ? You see, the miracles in God's word are both redemptive and restorative. They're redemptive. The miracles are meant to show us how God redeems his people, but they're also restorative that it shows us how Christ is working to make us a new creation, to restore us and to make us more and more into his image. I can't help but think of this story and think about Jesus healing the woman. Do you remember this story? Jesus was out on his way preaching and speaking to the crowds, and there was a woman who had a, 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 a flow of blood, we're told, for 12 years, and she had visited physician after physician. No one could heal her or cure her. And she finally sees Jesus, and she says to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, maybe I would be saved. And in that act of faith, merely brushing against Jesus, she's cleansed and Jesus turns to her with a response of compassion and grace and tells her that her sins have been forgiven and that she's been cleansed from this debilitating ailment. But you see, it wasn't just a medical condition that she was suffering from. That condition prevented her from going to the temple. She was ceremonially unclean. And in that moment, as Jesus healed her, it's not just a medical healing, but it's a spiritual healing that he's restoring her to the life that she was intended to have. Or maybe in Matthew 27, maybe at your church this Sunday, as they preached on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, they touched on the theme of at the crucifixion. Do you remember that at the crucifixion, the curtain in the temple was torn in two as Jesus died? And that curtain, which symbolized the separation between God and man, only the high priest could go beyond the curtain. But at Jesus' death, that curtain was ripped in two, symbolizing that the way has been opened, that man and God can now be reconciled, that God has come to restore his people. But it wasn't just that the curtain was born in two. In verse 52 of that chapter, we're told that the tombs were opened. I, you're like, if there's a moment in the Bible, you wish you could go back and like witness what this would have been like. The tombs were opened. And at Jesus' resurrection, people, saints, rose again from the dead and were walking around speaking with new life. The barrier of death had been torn and Christ had overcome the power of sin and death. You see, the final miracle of Elisha's life should really give us hope. Because what God has been doing from the very beginning, as soon as sin entered the world, is working to redeem and to restore his people. If even an anonymous soldier in 2 Kings chapter 13 can be resurrected from the dead, 
then so too God's power through Christ is at work for you and for me even here tonight. How quickly time passes by. How quickly time passes by that you look up and before you know it, the school year's over, before you know it, your college career is over, before you know it, you're on to the next season of life. And these moments give us an opportunity to reflect and to consider where we are before the Lord and to see that He's at work redeeming and restoring even people like you and me that if our hope is in Christ, He offers and promises us new life. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we come tonight and we consider these words, we do ask that you'll... Uh, grant us the faith and the trust and the hope to lean on you and to rely on you that even in the places where we feel discouraged and we feel abandoned and we feel empty, that you'll bring new life. And so even as we discuss these questions tonight, encourage us by your word with one another. We pray in Christ's name.